From Schwartz Media, I'm Elizabeth Kulas. This is 7am. Australia records higher losses from gambling than any other country in the world. Our politics encourages the industry for the sake of tax revenues and for fear of its powerful lobby. James Boyce on how the sector uses faulty research to avoid regulation. is the problem of gambling in Australia? What's the scale of what we're talking about? The scale is around $24 billion a year lost in gambling. Over $1,000 per adult per year. James Boyce is a writer and historian. He wrote about Australia's gambling problem for The Monthly. These are the largest gambling losses in the world, not just by a small amount, but by a significant amount. Like that, in terms of per capita losses, three times the UK, nothing is approaching the Australian gambling losses. Nearly a quarter of a million Australians either have an addiction to online gambling or are at risk of heading down that path. We have a massive problem with it. It's under-regulated. There are no consumer protections. It's shoved at us constantly. You never know when you are going to win. That's the excitement, the thrill, the risk, the chase. What makes Australia's gambling culture unique? Why do we have such massive losses? What's unique and distinctive about Australia is that modern sorts of poker machines, in Australia, they're not just in casinos or gambling-only venues, but they're in the neighbourhood. They're in out there in your, in your local pub or club. This is the only place in the world, at the moment, that does that on a national scale. The Australian Institute has found that 76% of the world's poker machines that are outside of casinos are here in Australia. And how did we get here, James? How did Australia develop that relationship with gambling? Well, if you listen to the state governments and if you listen to the gambling industry, they'll say, you know, it's all part of Australian culture. Yeah, but I'll have you know this is a fair game, open and above board. You now watch carefully. It goes back, you know, you look at the, the soldiers playing two up in the trenches. They're some of my own boys, I'm afraid. They're rather wonderful. Outlandish in the sort of way. Love of the horse races. It's just ingrained in who we are. Bobby doesn't win today. He's finished. I suppose I am too. Now, this is an absolute misrepresentation of history, I can assure you as a historian. From the late 1980s, early 1990s, you had state governments running out of money. Health and education costs were going through the roof. So they turned to poker machines as a way of saving themselves. We weren't a particularly big gambling country before that. This has all been driven by state governments since that time. It's been a deliberate government policy choice. OK. What does it mean that we've had this policy development? What does it mean for individuals? The effect of the harms being caused range all the way from the loss of tenancies, relationships break up, people losing jobs, going to prisons. A Victorian study 
found that gambling was the second leading cause of imprisonment of people in Victoria, second to illicit drug use. And why aren't governments doing more to curb this? Well, the traditional answer for that, and the one you'll hear the most, is that the state governments themselves are addicted to poker machine revenue. Now, there is some validity in this argument, of course, especially in Victoria, which has been the state most successful. Well over a billion dollars a year of their state budget comes out of poker machine taxes. But I would argue the bigger answer is actually not that. Only about 25% of poker machine losses around Australia actually return to state governments, and it should be, of course, far higher than that. And that points to the real problem here of why we have got no action, which is the political power of the industry. There are many politicians who understand that if they were to say that they were going to institute any measures at all that had any benefit, that would mean reducing gambling losses. The poker machine industry will punish them. Right. How does that power of the gambling industry actually work in real time? Well, it's partly direct donations. So they directly donate to political parties and to individual candidates. Mm -hmm. But it's also fear. Any politician or political party that does take a stand for sensible, rational reform, their opponents are given whatever they need to defeat them. So they're given enormous financial supports. So when people do criticise the industry, what is the industry response to that criticism? As soon as you name up the problem, their main first call of defence is always this research they point to, that over 99% of Australians gamble responsibly. So responsible gambling. Yeah. So why punish them? The rights, the freedoms, the fun of everybody else who gambles responsibly, this is their main propaganda weapon of choice. But it's also a complete fabrication. Responsible gambling framework and ideology is built on a lie that gambling harms are confined to a tiny proportion of the population. They are not. We'll be right back. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For long-time editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very if that's, pro-therapy on yeah, this. If, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So the gambling industry relies on this problem gambling research, which it largely conducts according to its own terms. How are they collecting this information? 
Well, the, how they measure the problem gambling in the community is literally to do random telephone calls, uh, like a normal market research survey. You just do a random phone calls until you get someone to answer and until you get someone who's prepared to sit down and do the survey, which is a series of questions about your gambling behaviour. So, for example, they'll ask you, how often have you needed to gamble with larger amounts of money to get the same feeling of excitement? How often have you bet more than you could really afford to lose? Would you say never, sometimes? How often have you got back another day to try and win back the money you lost? How often have you borrowed money or sold anything to get money to gamble? About the past year as well, how often have you felt that you might have a problem with gambling? Now, to expect that people would be able to honestly admit to face up to their, the extent of the gambling harm they're causing themselves and to their loved ones, to an anonymous person over the phone, I mean, this is just ludicrous. The Productivity Commission to test what's a, a fairly obvious finding that people would not be in a position able or willing to mm -hmm. answer these questions honestly to an anonymous researcher over the phone, did ask problem gamblers later who were in treatment whether they would have been in a position to do this and, of course, unsurprisingly found that the majority would not have been. The other power that they use in this research is that they deliberately mislead the Australian public by using this term problem gambler. Now, most people in the community, in plain Australian English, they assume that problem gambler means somebody with a gambling problem. So when they say, oh, it's less than 1% of the Australian population are problem gamblers, the average person in the street understandably and reasonably thinks, oh, that's less than 1% of the population who have a problem with gambling. Now, it's not that at all because the term problem gambler in these studies has a specific clinical derived definition. It's people with the most severe forms of gambling harm, people with a serious pathology. And James, what's the outcome if we look at that research, research that calls people and hopes to get them at the right time, research that asks people to self-identify and that defines their problems incredibly narrowly and intensely? Why are these systems built to keep the research working in the way that it does? Well, the outcome of the research is simple. It just cements the status quo. It just doesn't lead to change because it, it's used to reassure everybody that there's no need to make policy changes, that everything's hunky-dory. So it's not the industry's problem. It's not the government's problem. It's not a policy issue. We don't need to change anything because 99% of the population are, are not experiencing harm. And James, what is that real headline figure actually likely to be? More reputable studies for one recently done in the ACT by, you know, by the ANU found that over 60% of poker machine losses were done by people who experienced significant levels of harm by their, their gambling. So only less than 40% of poker machine losses in the ACT were from non-problem gamblers. Wow. We start to talk about non-problem gamblers, that's much more accurate, and we know that non-problem gamblers account for less than half of poker machine losses here we have an industry that controls a lot of the research and data we have on its behaviour. They pay government in various ways. It sounds a lot like where tobacco was 20, 30 years ago. 
It's, it's exactly the same. We had tobacco ensuring that the real questions weren't being asked for decades, decades after we knew the harm being caused. And the only way through this was to reduce consumption. But we didn't get to that position until we freed tobacco research from the influence of the tobacco industry. The only way you reduce the harm from tobacco is to reduce consumption. And to have independence from industry in gathering data so that you do have data. That's- Independent, absolutely. So the gambling industry has picked up the tobacco playbook and run with it. How do we get our way out of this situation? Well, it's the, the public health approach needs to be exactly the same as with tobacco. And the way that you reduce the levels of gambling harm in the community is very simple. And the way we do that is to properly and responsibly regulate the industry in the way that the rest of the world does, the way that Australia used to do. We've got enough evidence after three decades of research to know the harm's been caused, to know that this is a very dangerous product we're talking about. And James, I guess that's how we've ended up with a whole industry that covers itself by the fiction of responsible gambling. And we've just had a federal election and no one talked about gambling almost at all. Mm, Far too scared to talk about it. And if you think about it, this is not about ideologies. This is just about rational, sensible public policy reform but the, the politicians you would expect who'd have a particular concern with it from the left and the right are as unwilling as any others to take them on because the industry is just so powerful and they're just too scared of them. Thanks for chatting to us, James. Oh, thanks very much, Elizabeth. Pleasure to talk to you. Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Memento. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com. Elsewhere in the news, in Florida, Donald Trump has launched his re-election campaign for president. In a 76-minute speech, he rallied against many of the targets of his first campaign. The press, the elite, politicians. To cheers, he dismissed them as people who, quote, look down with hatred on our values and with utter disdain for the people whose lives they want to run. And in Australia, the High Court has ruled that a sperm donor who was involved with the parenting of a child is legally that child's father. The decision overturns a ruling of the family court and could have implications for other similar cases. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. This is 7am. See you Friday.